The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. All the brave folks who are willing to drive on the slippery roads tonight. Appreciate people, their willingness, and hopefully, I'm guessing, your appreciation of the power of community gathering together like this and reflecting. I mean, it's really shocking how long a human being like you know, many of this, uh, many of us rather, how long we can live uh, busy by life and just not interested in the fact that there's a mind here, like even what that is. Because we have this external orientation, you know, what's going on around us. And it's only when we feel safe enough and we have the supports, like reminders, that we realize there's a heart, there's a mind, there's this, whatever you want to call it, right here. And it's, you know, this is a huge turning point in our life where we, because the external orientation is really, it's still this compassionate response. Like, I'm trying to get it right, I'm trying to find my way, I'm trying to make life work for me, participate in a, you know, wholesome way, in a way that I feel my needs are being met and I'm not stepping on others' toes. So there's, that external orientation isn't wrong, but it's not really easy to have an external orientation without having a clue, like, what's going on in here. And see, the presumption is we know like, I know what I need out there because I know what's in here. But do we, <laughs> is the issue. Do we really understand what's moving? What? Because we have a lot of urges and dispositions and have, we have a lot of ideas about who I am, what I need, what will make me happy, what causes me to be unhappy, but we don't really bother to take a close, a very close, I don't want to say careful because that always seems a little tight, but checking in in a way that's full of care. Oh, yeah. And we might be actually surprised by what we find turning inward. So over the last few months, or at least a few weeks, I guess maybe since early February, um, I and Shelley and perhaps some of the other teachers for these weekly practice groups, we've been more particularly looking at these four emotions of loving kindness or that basic goodness of the heart, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity. These are the four divine abodes or the four Brahma Viharas, as it's talked about in Buddhism. And these are the four emotions that they're both kind of a a path, like something to develop, but also the fruit of our practice. We just 
find that the mind more and more is dominated by these qualities. And that's one way that interest might express itself, like just going through the day and during a set meditation period and just curious, like, is this mind colored or um, sort of strong with kindness? Or is it a mind that's dominated by fear and aversion? I mean, that's just a, like, that's a question that somebody who's realized that the heart of the mind, that it's relevant. Like, if I'm going to figure out how to be in the world, I need to know something about the heart. And one of the things we'd want to know, moment by moment, like, is this heart dominated by fear right now? And anger, irritation? Or is this a heart that is full of, you know, that capacity for goodness and kindness and tenderness? And it doesn't mean we'll know what to do, but that's just like basic like knowledge of oneself. Like, how's the heart doing? Full of fear? Full of kindness? And we should always, like, if the answer is full of fear, you know, we should continue to observe. Like, we shouldn't always assume, because often our look is pretty superficial. Oh, yeah, no, my heart's, my heart's good. Lots of kindness there. You know, sometimes it's nice to have a good friend. What's your impression? You know, what are you saying in my heart? You know, because I'm thinking I'm doing good, but... You know, that may not be our good friend's report. Like, you seem like you're hurting, you know, or you seem like you're not really here. And then that might, in, that we don't want to take their answer as the truth either, but it might inspire us to feel a little more deeply, be a little bit more patient, and just sort of letting the heart, letting the qualities of the mind reveal themselves. Oh, oh, this is what's moving. This is what's being felt. This is the coloring, the filter that I'm living out of, living through. Oh, interesting. And even <clears throat> like so much of the work of using the heart to get to know the heart, using the mind to get to know the mind, <clears throat> is realizing we may not actually, like we, it's probably good actually to know that we really don't know what basic goodness or basic kindness or love, that we might not actually have a clear, direct sense of what that is and what it isn't. Like one way to sort of reflect on this, do we know, can you remember an experience of your heart where you had a lot of love but there was no attachment. Because that's like just, you don't have to believe the Buddha. But you know, the, the Buddha, when he talked about metta or the sort of basic goodness, this basic goodwill, he's talking about a love that's free of attachment. So that's sort of interesting. Like, well, what is my actual experience of love something that seemed authentically good and generous, embracing, 
but there was an attachment there. And then that gets us interested in the heart. Because, you know, um, you know, in this work, what culture has taught us, what our friends or families have taught us, we really have to sort of keep that, put that aside. It's really this more immediate and direct research that we're doing. I mean, it would be really nice if we had a small group especially because that would hold us accountable in a way <coughs> that a bigger group like this can't. But, you know, if you had a, a group of four friends, let's say, who were into awareness, present moment awareness, and you just had a deal that, you know, you got together once a week and you just take up like a particular flavor of love and you're going to report back. I mean... It sounds silly, but why would this be silly? It would be so helpful. Okay, in a week's time, we're going to get together and we're going to report back like what actual authentic experiences of basic friendliness, no strings attached, no attachment, just that simple and sweet and generous upwelling of the heart, that good upwelling, like, You know, just, I'm not, it's not strategic, it's just feeling good. You know, where we see this, like one of the things, one of those four people would report, oh yeah, when I was hanging out with my dog. Not all the time, but there were moments when I was with that beast, and there was just, the heart was, the. it was just a pure, simple generosity. I wasn't playing with the dog, or I wasn't feeding the dog, I wasn't caring for the dog in order for the dog to love me. It wasn't a business relationship. It wasn't a relationship of attachment. Certainly it was in moments, but I recognized a few moments where the relating was very pure. It was just pure generosity. right? And that would be interesting. I mean, this is how we would learn, kind of listening to each other, sharing, and just the resolve to come back and share, you'd get interested in a way you you might not otherwise be interested. Uh, One of the very influential lineages or training methods in this general scene we call Vipassana or insight meditation, sometimes we call it early Buddhism or Theravada Buddhism, but there was a very well-known teacher in Burma, Mahasi Sayadaw. He came to the West a couple times, I think, certainly once. And uh, forgetting when he died, but maybe um, early 90s or something like that. But anyway, uh, in that style of practice, which is very rigorous, you would report every day or six days a week to your teacher. You know, and there's a real formality. You do your bows. And then you would report sort of when your mind was most clear and had some continuity of present moment awareness in a formal sitting time, in a formal walking time, and then just as you're going about the day. And that sort of rigor of knowing you're going to show up to your teacher 
and they're going to really want to hear what you've learned. And as soon as you start talking and they see you haven't seen anything new that you hadn't seen before, there's just there's kind of this like, okay, see you next day. You know, they just sort of dismiss you and then you're off. You could be mid-sentence. And they're just to dismiss you because they realize you don't have any, you haven't seen something you hadn't already seen. I'm interested in you reporting on something you hadn't seen before. Right? So that's why this is, why we use that word sometimes to talk about this particular school or way of practice. We call it insight meditation. And that means more technically seeing what we haven't seen yet. Right? We want to learn. We, wanna, we don't want to see what we already know. We want that sort of surprising, oh, this is how it is. It's so interesting being in the role of a teacher and hearing people talk about the practice and then just also being somebody who's been practicing for several decades now, 30, over 30 years. Um, but just how many times in my practice, for example, it was like, oh, oh, this is how it is, you know? And then a little later, with a little bit more practice, a little bit more insight, oh, no, no, this is how it is. And it's not like it's a radical shift. It's all green. No, no, no. Oh, oh my God, it's all blue. It's not like a complete shift, but it's always a little surprising, partly because when we have some understanding arise, the habit of the ego is to say, okay, now I get it, right? To kind of claim it as some kind of personal ground. I've got some wisdom here. I've got some understanding. And it's the same thing about love. You know, we, it's, it would be embarrassing to say, like, I don't really know about love. And the thing is, what real love is, is not something that can be captured by a thinking mind. Nobody can own it. We can experience it, right? There can be awareness when that quality, what we call love, which may be uh, more, it might be more useful to call it the complete, like moments where there's a complete absence of fear, a complete absence of aversion in the heart, right? See, that doesn't that make it more clear? Like no aversion, no fear, right? We can be aware in those moments. We can let those moments leave an impression. Like if we happen to be mindfully aware in a moment where there is very little, maybe actually no hate, no fear, no aversion, then, and there's awareness in that moment, then there's a significant impression. That, that's impactful. And that's an insight. Like, I hadn't seen a mind free of aversion before. You know, that hadn't been felt or seen or experienced that impression hadn't been laid down in the space of awareness. <clears throat> so then going forward, we're a person, we're a different person. Because now we're a person, right? A mind stream, you could say, more technically, but we're a person that has that impression, that saw or experienced the mind free of hate, free of fear, free of aversion.
I like also, so that's, you know, that, so just some telltale signs to inspire the investigation. Love without attachment is one thing I mentioned, right? Heart or mind free of all fear, all aversion. And related to that is sort of not being strategic. But but that's not the same as sort of fumbling about and not being functional in terms of the situation we're in, like being inappropriate, for example. So being in a place where where the kind of simple, authentic quality of love is expressing itself, it's just the opposite. It actually makes like how the heart-mind is participating in the moment much more nimble and skillful. But it's not strategic. So we might really handle a situation really beautifully, creatively, nimbly, but it wasn't a strategic thing, me trying to be really good. right? It was more like what we might in conventional language call being in the flow. And then in hindsight, we might look back on that interaction and realize, wow, that was handled really well. That felt really good. Doesn't seem like anything, any, there's any kind of unwholesome trace in my heart from what just happened there. But we don't look back and think, yeah, I had the plan, I carried it out, and, you know, I really succeeded. I really nailed that interaction. It doesn't have that flavor, right? Because the flavor it has is really that flavor of gratitude or appreciation that, like, I mean, there's an authentic uh, quality of appreciation just to be in the proximity of what just happened. You know, but it's not what we would normally call pride or egoic because it doesn't feel personal. It, it's me, in a sense, you know, it happened to me, so we can use those conventional pronouns, you know, when we're talking about it. But our experience wasn't that I was really good. There was goodness. It was moving nimbly and creatively because it just wanted to generously show up and do what it could do in that moment. So if it's a really beautiful moment, then it was nimbly, creatively appreciative and sort of honoring the success somebody's having or whatever you know the, would have been appropriate in that moment. Or if it's a really difficult moment, someone's suffering or you're suffering, then the showing up would have been very tender-hearted and, and patient and not afraid of the suffering and not afraid to alleviate the suffering if you know, the mind, the heart saw something that could be said or done. But it doesn't feel personal. So that's another just way, thing to use as you're investigating this whole terrain of these four qualities that make up love, this sort of basic goodness, basic friendliness, compassion, tender-heartedness, which for me, one of the most important aspects of a compassion is not being afraid of suffering. And it actually frees us up to help if we can. 
I mean, I'm really, part of it is, you know, just my cultural conditioning where I feel helpless in a kind of an egoic way if I can't make someone's suffering go away. You know, so, but that's neurotic. That's not actually helping anybody. It's like, I need your suffering to go away in order to feel good about myself and for, in order for me to see that you feel good about me too, right? So then it's kind of like we're putting somebody on, putting something on somebody who's suffering. Like, I need your suffering to go away. And that's not helpful. So one of the aspects I've noticed more and more over the years is like I'm training myself. I feel like I'm just right in the middle of this, not to be afraid of suffering. Like, another way of saying this is to learn to relax first. Instead of to fall into that momentum of the cultural conditioning to be the savior, to have something to say, you know, to have the answer, to just feel the complexity and to especially be able to feel what I feel like to not be, be able to resolve the issue at hand. And then when I really make peace with that, my own personal stuff, you could say, then whenever I do kind of more directly connect, open to what's happening, let's say, to the person who's suffering, then I'm not opening with a neurotic need to fix their suffering. So anything I might say or do is really unnatural, like that I mentioned before, that it's not a perfect word, but the word flow, like it's a natural flow from being intimate or connected with the person to offer something. But I don't need for their suffering to go away because there's compassion here. And part of what compassion is, is to know how to be close to suffering even if it can't be alleviated. Right? And that's who I think we want around us when we're really suffering. We want someone who may have something to help, but they may not have anything, or no one may have anything to be able to make the suffering go away. But the last way we'd want in that moment is for them to be uncomfortable with the suffering that I'm experiencing. Right? Because then all of a sudden I, then I feel like I've got to take care of their suffering. They're suffering because I'm suffering, you know. And so now I feel badly because they're suffering because I'm suffering. You see, it just compounds the experience. And this is quite common in our just ordinary circles of family and friends as we connect with each other around very ongoing, ordinary suffering. And it's really, I mean, I don't think there's any end. I, the more I wake up around issues of racism and patriarchy and kind of start to feel and be more aware of my own position in that. Um, and because uh, the, the reflex is to sort of, again, like, okay, let's fix this because this is a very uncomfortable place, you know, the world being imperfect in these ways and being complicit in these ways. So it, it, it almost is more of a, 
uh, unhelpful instinct, let's fix this now. What can I do to fix this now? And uh, to just notice the very real imbalances that exist in our wider world, in our intimate relationships, in our own heart, the unfinished business, the unresolved pain. And this is where awareness practice and love really intersect because that's what awareness practice is. It's not about passivity. It's just this wisdom that understands being able to connect, being unafraid about being intimate is really going to help with your engagement, with your response to your life, moment by moment. So it's, it's not like, okay, 10 years of just being intimate and then 10 years of engagement afterward. It's really moment by moment. Like, but we, because the other thing we're learning is the movement, you know, that compassionate movement, engagement, it's not something that we have to do. That's kind of neurotic to think that I have to respond, I have to take care of myself or another. It's more like the emphasis is more on the connecting, the being intimate, the feeling what we feel. Because action comes out of that exposure. And that's a powerful lesson. And you can see that also about like this real, this is a real insight and transformation where we normally want to judge or see ourselves in terms of our actions, what we say and what we do. And more and more as a practitioner, as somebody who's inspired by these teachings from the Buddha, basically really, uh, you know, the instruction is to deeply value awareness, present moment awareness, being intimate, seeing things, feeling things as they are, right? So that's the instruction. So instead of being a doer, instead of being identified with the doing, right, and the becoming, the fixing, the controlling, we're not saying no to action, We're just giving action back to what's been running action all along, which is nature. Action is nature. Action is going to happen. We don't have to claim action. So as the practitioner, we're abandoning the identification to being the doer. And initially, ultimately we abandon this too, but initially we, in a way, construct an identity around being the one who knows, being the one who's willing to be intimate, being the one who's willing to feel what's here to feel, being the one who's willing to relax and to be curious and to let the moment express itself, to reveal itself. And then part of what the awareness knows is the action that arises out of that intimacy. Because being aware doesn't mean we're putting the brakes on speech or action. Right? There's no... That wasn't the instruction. Hold perfectly still. (laughs) 
you know, keep your mouth shut. There's not, you know, you don't find those instructions in the practice or in from the Buddha. But you do find the instruction about being present, cultivating present moment awareness, and developing a real clarity, a real stability. Like one of the things in the Buddha's words on loving kindness, this very famous discourse he gave, and it's, it's over the centuries, has become a kind of protecting chant that you see in Buddhist cultures where they're just repeated, especially when things are scary or difficult in their life. But one of the lines there that's really beautiful, but I think sometimes misunderstood, is even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. And uh, that's just one way it's translated different ways. But I, I notice a couple translators and scholars and teachers I really respect, they really make this point that people think that what the Buddha is saying that is we should love all beings exactly like we would love our only child. Right? Doesn't it sound that way? But that's not the point of that. Because first of all, that would be very inappropriate you know, for us to love everyone like we would love our only child. And, and one of the teachers, uh, scholars, says like, a rattlesnake. You know, you don't want to relate to your, a rattlesnake like you would your only child. That would be an inappropriate relationship. So what the Buddha is talking about there is this capacity for love and intimacy, this ability we all have, not necessarily developed, can't really manifest it in every moment, but in some moments we can, to be really showing up in a generous way, be willing to be intimate, be willing in that moment, for a moment, not to our showing up, our relating, connecting, isn't about meeting my needs, right? So it's not strategic. It's not a business, a moment of business. Like, I'm going to be here for you, but I expect this in return. So there's not that negotiating. It's really, that's why the upwelling or radiance, these words are boundless, expansive, these words are used in terms of loving kindness because it has this nature to include, to go out, to be inclusive. And so, what that section of the loving kind, the discourse on loving kindness, is about is that he's the Buddha is saying that capacity to relate in that way should be protected as your only child, right? The capacity for love. Right, should be developed and protected in the same way you would protect your only child. And in a way, like for those of you who have young children, just because it's provocative to say this, it might actually be more beneficial, like in terms of your to-do list, take care of the child, it might be even more beneficial for your child and your partner and all the other obligations, duties and responsibilities to have at the top of your to-do list protecting this capacity, this potential for loving kindness as I would protect my only child as we live our lives. And just imagine like if we had that value 
from, you know, whatever, 13 years of age or something like that. When we could, you know, when once we had become a reflective human being, whatever age that was for you, 60, <laughs> some of your, the prodigies in the room, maybe at three or four. But wherever it was, you know, where we became sort of reflective of ourselves as a, you know, human being, a sentient being, a feeling being, with the kind of question that those beings have, like, what do I do with this life? You know, like, we have some sort of hypothesis about happiness and we start to act it out, right? Some strategy. So we have some sense of agency. Okay, I'm going for happiness. And then that's when we have the to-do list. Okay, this is my plan for happiness. If that doesn't work, you know, we or this is the most important. This is where I think we'll deliver. You know, getting some comic book or you know making this person like me or being popular or not embarrassing myself. Right? These sound probably familiar because even today, these are somewhere in the top twenty of our strategies, maybe the top ten. But it's interesting how unlikely it is that, you know, living with loving kindness, remembering the potential, this heart, this mind's potential, capacity to be generous, to be kind, to be loving, to be unafraid of suffering, to be appreciative of what's beautiful and good, to be equanimous with what's confusing and ambiguous. It's just interesting that that doesn't get anywhere close to financial uh, financial security or, you know, having a dear friend who's got my back. And I, I mean, I get it because these are primal needs and they can make us safe enough question whether they should be at the top of the list. You know, by having some financial security and having a couple friends who've got your back, right, and feeling like you belong, that may give you enough security to wonder if they should be at the top of the list. And this is like a real turning point. You could even, I think it's fair to call this the turning point from living a worldly life to living what we might call a spiritual life. But it's really this shift in allegiance from kind of what I can get to make me feel safe, to make me feel like I belong, right, to what I can give. And I know that it can kind of uh, bug us and even turn our stomachs a little to hear something because it seems really idealistic, you know, for someone on a platform to say, you know what, it's all about giving. Is that about, you know, what was that pop song about being a taker? I forget the line now. But it's, you know, it's been said one way or another for a long time, you know. But we have to do our own research because the the thing is, being a, you know, being somebody who gives because you think you're going to get safety or you're going to get... It doesn't work that way. See, that's why it's a setup. 
What really works is to start being intimate, right? To really value that, because that really then begins to give us direct data, evidence about how healing moments of love, for lack of a better word, authentic love, love without attachment, love without a strategy or without a business orientation, how healing and liberating that is. Short of full awakening, you know, or even deep insight or deep concentration, the most available way to experience the liberation the Buddha points to in his life, his own life, and talks about, advises that we uncover in our own lives, is recognizing these natural moments when love is quite simple and pure. But you have to be aware, you have to be mindfully aware in those moments and notice the liberating quality of that generosity of the heart. Simple moments where there's just a natural appreciation, a natural tenderness, a compassionate tenderness, a natural friendliness. And then really notice, like, how's the heart doing? Notice how much space, like the absence of torment, the absence of psychic weight, burdensomeness in those moments. Oh, because what will come then if we're really mindfully aware in those simple moments, oh, maybe this is the way. Or maybe this has something to do with the way. And clearly the Buddha makes that point. And you know, there's a lot in practice that's quite dry. And, you know, just to be a little provocative, a little sterile and really close with that flavor of nihilism. It's not nihilistic, the practice, but it can have that sort of dry, uh, cool flavor, certainly at times. But metta, the flavors of love, this is the wet or moist side of practice. And it really, I mean, everyone's a little different. Some of you will need more moisture in your practice than others, right? Some people just kind of are dry types (laughs) and we shouldn't judge them. But, But everybody needs some amount of balance, right? And so somewhere in your spiritual practice, you should be getting some moisture in your heart, in your mind, not just sort of a dry plowing ahead, one step after another. You know, that flavor of it's all about non-attachment. And another, just and I'll end with this point and open it up for discussion, but just generally, you know, a lot of times people think of these as different paths, but they're just, the path is the path of letting go, right? Putting down the load. And there's two basic ways, and we really need to dance with both of these ways. One way, this is the dry way, is saying nothing is really worth holding to. Nothing is really worth being attached to. Absolutely, you know, 
nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. That's a line from the Buddhist teaching. And the other path, right, of letting go is saying yes to everything. Yes, this belongs, this belongs, this belongs. So one is the path of putting everything down, and the other is the path of picking everything up and saying, yes, you too. This too belongs. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid to feel. I'm not afraid to see. I'm not afraid to touch. Right? And the interesting question for us, as you kind of explore like where you are with moist and dry, saying yes, saying no, right? Because really, to be a skillful human being, you have to know how to say no. No, this isn't the way. Yes, this is how it is. How do I know? Because it's here. It's now. So yes is the appropriate response. Is to see which scares you, and then to look there. It's kind of dig in a little there. Like what's easy, that's still okay for that to be your main approach. But one of the ways to really strengthen your main way of having insight, seeing what you haven't seen, is to get interested in what is not your inclination in terms of your practice. So I'll leave it there. We have about 15 minutes. It would be great to hear I've been saying all along. You know, there are between all of us, we've learned a thing or two about how love moves, when it's false, when it's real, what gets in the way, how does love and all of its expressions relate to awareness, present moment awareness, and of course, any questions you have. Anybody want to begin? What questions? What have you been learning about love? What gets in the way? Yeah, Mike, please. Well, you had, you had talked a little bit about um, kind of checking in with yourself in terms of love or just kind of the, the state of the, the heart and mind and how it's not enough to just feel like, yeah, it's like it's good. You know, I feel pretty good. And so that just kind of reminded me of how recently I've just noticed how even when I feel really like a lot of equanimity and and feel pretty um, flow state, for instance, in my life, not because the conditions are perfect, just because I'm feeling that, I'll find myself going into my formal practice and then really feeling that there's still a lot of unsettled stuff going on. And so it it's kind of really interesting because, I mean, it points to something about just everyday life because it's like just basically in a way is full of kind of distraction even when we don't th- realize that that's happening um so that's just been a really interesting um discovery and it's not always unsettled sometimes it can be completely calm and equanimous in my formal practice um but <laughs> more often than not there's like yeah this sort of panic <laughs> and i think in part because i'm someone who just has has long had like a lot of anxiety and so it's like you just feel that and for me i've kind of shifted from this like breath type anchor to a feeling anchor where it's just, just feeling all the different all the different expressions of unsettledness 
you know, and how that changes. Yeah. Yeah, that's more, that's a deeper wisdom practice, right? Being at the level of feeling, the underlying feeling, and seeing the reality of dukkha, that it's, it's uh, not worthy of attachment. And any identification with that movement of feeling, things start to get bound up very quickly with attachment. Seeing that it's in motion. They're not different insights, they're just different angles on the way it is, that movement of feeling, right? Seeing its changing nature, it's always becoming the next feeling. The feeling is a river, right? It's a river of feeling. It doesn't, it's not like a feeling that's static. And uh, that that river is impersonal. You know, that it's just arising out of this sort of enormity of past dispositions, past experience, showing up in the present moment, affected by present moment inputs, what you're seeing, what's being thought, how the mind's relating. Yeah. No, that sounds really rich. And one more point, though. And one, one thing to throw in to your practice is somehow to sense like maybe it doesn't have to, like that movement of anxiety, like let's even call it anxiety or that movement of feeling. Maybe it's not about it ceasing. Maybe what ceases is any friction to that movement of feeling. Because there's sort of two things we learn in practice. One is how to retreat from that from feeling impacted by the movement of feeling. So we get into a quiet place where there is some stillness and equanimity. And then another thing we learn in practice, and that's really helpful, it's very healing to be able to retreat into a quiet, still, peaceful place. And there's, and there's another thing we learn in practice, which is as if this river of feeling were to never end, and there's some equanimity there, like I can let this feeling, this flow of feeling can be allowed to move, even if it's really all the suffering in the world, the bottomless suffering of the world, of past, present, and future. But no friction, no mind, no part of the mind saying no to the movement of feeling, right? So that's, a, that's another kind of freedom. And that freedom isn't dependent on being secluded or retreated into a quiet, peaceful place, as nice and healing and useful as those quiet places are. Yeah, thank you. And I mean, the more I've learned about it is that our feelings don't even need to be colored by thinking either. It's like, so, but there's still the aversion, so it's like, it's something to investigate. It's like, is that aversion about the feeling a th- part of thinking? Or yeah. <laughs> where is that coming from? Yeah, and, and even know. more direct, is it helpful? Is the thinking helpful? Is it contributing in any way that can be discerned? Because if the mind really sees that thinking about the feeling isn't helpful, like once the mind knows how to be intimate with the feeling... And then thinking arises because of the force of habit. Then from that point of view of being intimate with it, what does the thinking contribute? And often what we catch is how the thoughts 
are always a defense from the feeling, but will never be able to defend, you know, or control or manage. It's like some people, I'm, I'm not sort of a whitewater person, but some of you maybe are kayakers or other experiences, you know, in canoes. But there's something about in people who work in those sort of water sports, there's something about using the current and not fighting the current, right? Because you're not going to win, right? So it's really about not having, not resisting what's already in motion. And there's something about this in terms of feeling too, like what wisdom learns or what wisdom understands. Yeah, thanks Mike for getting us going. Who'd like to go next? Okay. Hi, I'm Shannon. Uh, so just thinking about um, the second Brahma Vihara, compassion, it's one that I always uh, probably struggle with the most when it comes to the four of them. And uh, probably like a big part of that is I have a tendency to jump into empathy where I'm more so feeling somebody else's pain and then it's into that cycle of suffering like you have mentioned and so it's just something that like I think I want to like work more towards is you know going towards more compassion feeling more love and kindness towards those who are suffering and trying to recognize that their pain isn't my pain and it's it's something that you know just something to think about um, in light of uh, your discussion tonight. Yeah. It's a very provocative phrase in early Buddhism that's something like your happiness and unhappiness arises because of karma, because of cause and effect, not because of my wishes for you. And that's an interesting thing, like when you're going to walk into a situation with a friend, let's say, who's really in a difficult place, it might be useful for us to say that to ourselves, like, not out loud to the person, of course, but, okay, friend, your happiness or unhappiness that you're experiencing now, it's really not my business. It's really the business of all those causes and conditions that are making up your life. We're not blaming them like for their cancer or their financial insecurity because we're not saying they're causing. We're just saying there are causes. And my showing up in your life is just a relatively small cause. But it may be, you know, there may be something we can do or say, but it's really nice to make peace that there may not, we may not have any cards to play but we can practice and we can show up with, I'm not afraid of your suffering. You know, I'm not afraid to be close even though you're suffering. And in a way, we're modeling what they have to figure out, like how not to be afraid of their own suffering, right? Because sometimes we're just in a really painful place. Yeah, thanks, Shannon, for sharing that. We have time for one more person. Be nice to hear. Oh, please, Kermit. Thank you. Um, my son, my 14-year-old son, has a uh, low white blood cell count, and they don't know why. And um, 
So he might be getting, <clears throat> if it doesn't improve, he might be getting a uh, bone marrow biopsy. And this will be, you know, I don't, <clears throat> I'm not afraid to show up for him, but how can I help him show up for himself or say yes to it or, you know, without, you know, big Dharma explanation or something. How can I, because he's going to be walking around with this by himself. I'm not going to be there with him all the time. Yeah. And this this could be scary. It might not. But, you know, so how can I help him? Well, you can, be you with, know. Be with himself. I mean, you could just give him a blow by blow because as his dad, you're processing this silently you know, like how to show up, how to not be afraid, how to not freeze up in your relationship with him because of the possibilities that are there. So you could be, in an appropriate way, giving him a blow-by-blow about how you're handling this uncertainty, this vulnerability, like being be, you know, in a way that's appropriate, being really clear about how it scares you and then what you do with that fear or how you relate to uncertainty. Yeah, like what are you doing with it and that helps? And what are you doing with it that doesn't help? Because it's good to talk to him about what you do that doesn't help too, right? Like sitting at night in your bed obsessing about what might unfold with this thing in ways that, so but again you ha, you know you have to do the translation so that that it will be helpful for him but just your modeling generally energetically without you saying anything will be helpful what, what seems to be helpful is is meeting the anxiety with um, kindness you know, rather than hating it or pushing it and normalizing it, which is what allows us to relate to it with kindness. Like sometimes in life, there's a lot of uncertainty. And we've got, you know, and we can be kind in those times. And laugh even. And to kind of normalize that whole, like it's both serious and we have to kind of put our minds to this. And life goes on. And that's sort of interesting, like, that's just an interesting thing to model around suffering. And, you know, I, again, I feel this around um, people who are really, uh, really trying to be wise activists. And so by doing that, they're really deep, deep in the, in the misery and suffering of the world and how how complex and embedded these cycles of suffering can be, whatever, you know, whatever that person's doing, you know, healing family stuff or dealing with social injustice. And it's, it's very interesting to see people who are on the front lines, how they find ways, like they're really connected with the truth of suffering, and they have ways that allow them to put it down. And it's really important, like I often say, it really matters what we pay attention to. And to always be looking at the thickest place of suffering isn't skillful. You know, we want to be able to really show up 
and we want to be willing to turn away. Because that really allows us to show up to be able to turn away. And it's just like modeling like you going out with your friends too and not always feeling like you've got to be home with your son because of all this uncertainty, for example. Well, good luck with that, Kermit. So it's uh, 9 o'clock. Let's just take a few seconds. Just enough time for one or two breaths together and let go of the words. Appreciate a few seconds of silence. Just being curious about the quality of the heart now, however that might be. Possibility of intimacy right now. Nice to be here together, everyone. Hopefully you have a safe trip home. Be careful out there. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.